Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're discussing Swedish history step by step from the Stone Age to the present day. I am the Swedish half of the show, Orsa. And I am Chris, your British guide through Swedish history. This is episode 75, meaning we're three quarters of the way to 100. Wow. Yeah, we've got a really mixed bag of history for you today. Like Almost all kinds of things that have been happening in the last 75 episodes. So there's lots of different kinds of drama that we're looking forward to talking to you about. But we shouldn't really waste any time, so we should dive right into the Swedish phrase of the week. Something we do in every episode. Yes, this one is Störta på patrull, which was another suggestion from our listener and top Swedish phrase suggesterer, Magnus. So once again, thank you, Magnus. This phrase literally translates to English as to encounter a patrol. A patrol in the sense of a group of soldiers or guards or police or that kind of thing. But uh, is that what it really means? Well, sort of. Störta på patrull means to encounter a problem or an obstacle. So you could say, for example... She stötte på patrull, encountered a patrol, when she tried to suggest that her office introduced casual Fridays, meaning that she was met with a problem or resistance or disagreement when making that suggestion. Magnus said he thought the phrase originates from running into trouble with the law, and from what I've been able to find out, that's most likely right. That's not to say that running into a patrol of guards or soldier or policemen is always trouble, especially not in places like modern-day Sweden. But the phrase probably originates from back when most people would have seen it as being synonymous with trouble. So that's a pretty good phrase. Uh, so we'll have to see if anybody runs into a patrol in uh, this episode. Last time we had a bit of a double timeline over the last two episodes, actually. And in one of them, we saw how King Eric married Princess Philippa from England. That tied the English and Kalmar Union crowns together in what was actually a really drawn-out process, which saw lots of delegations travelling back and forth between the two realms and get it done. And it took years. But come to Scandinavia, Philippa did, and along with a whole host of wedding guests, gifts, and even her own covered toilet seat, which was the best thing to bring. I'd still say that's an important thing to bring. If you're resettling in Scandinavia, make sure you bring your, was it red satin covered toilet seat that she brought? Yeah, or fur or something like that. But yeah, a decorative coloured comfy toilet seat. Margareta at this point could now slightly relax, at least on the family side of things, as the young couple were of course expected to start producing heirs for Eric and continue the dynasty in that way. So whilst this was happening, and to some extent distracting Margareta from the wedding negotiations, there was a bunch of wrangling over Gotland. Perennial character and luckiest man on the planet, former traitor Sven Sture, was welcomed back in the Queen's good graces and headed over to the island to try and take it back from the German knights, alongside two Swedish noblemen, one who was called Abraham, and that led to me singing the nursery rhyme Father Abraham, which we've since heard from a listener on Facebook is also a nursery rhyme that's popular, at least in Sunday schools in America. Same melody, but slightly different uh, lyrics. Yes, that was Ben on Facebook who let us know about the, the different versions, so thank you so much for letting us know. Unfortunately, though, for Sven and Abraham, their attempt to liberate Gotland failed, and then the Swedish fleet was burned by the knights to prevent another go at winning back the island by force. This led to more drawn-out negotiations, with Albert of Mecklenburg even getting in on the action once more, before Margareta finally paid a large sum to get Gotland back. And that's pretty much where we got up to. We have a new couple at the helm and an old island back in the realm. Uh, good rhyming there. Excellent rhyming. 
Now we have a few major developments to talk about today, and some of them are groundbreaking in their significance. But we'll start off with a shorter story, but it also has a few long-term consequences too, and it tells us a fair deal about the political world of the early 1400s. It starts off as a regular old religious dispute to do with who should be the next Swedish archbishop. In 1408, the previous archbishop died and, of course, needed to be replaced. This role, whilst obviously religious, isn't just confined to godly matters. It is also a highly political role. We've seen how religious figures, notably Bishop Lodehat, the favourite of the Bridgetines and Danish student in Prague, became hugely influential political figures, and Lodehat even rose to be Margareta's chancellor. And just like a jealous child or sibling, King Eric also wants his own equivalent to Margareta's chancellor stroke bishop, Lodehat. So he goes off and gets one. This one is a man called Jöns Geriksson Lodehat, a nephew of the bishop stroke chancellor, Peter Lodehat, who is still around at this point. What's even more fun is that they both studied at Prague University. It's a real uh, real thing in their family, then, yeah. isn't it? Be a religious figure in the Kanwar Union and study at Prague University. It can be a bit confusing, too, because, yeah, two Luderhats, both religious figures. And this younger nephew is a priest in Aarhus over in Denmark and eventually is made Eric's chancellor. After the death of the archbishop, Eric starts to put this Jöns' name forward to be a candidate for archbishop. But the Church Council of Sweden is having none of this for a number of reasons. Firstly, Luderhat isn't Swedish. The Kalmar Union was supposed to let each country, including the religious side of things, run themselves and not have foreign agents imposed on them from the other two countries in the Union. And secondly, there are rumours that this younger Luderhat doesn't entirely take his work seriously and is much more interested in partying, women, and generally living a life of luxury. Uh, not very archbishopy material then. And that's exactly what the Swedish church thinks, and so they swiftly appoint a man called Anders Jönsson as new archbishop. Well, problem solved then. Not quite. Margareta and Erik really want Lodehat to be the archbishop, so they intervene and demand that Lodehat is appointed to this role. The church utterly refuse to have some Danish playboy priest foisted upon them, and the dispute eventually reaches boiling point with neither side backing down. Now, you know in all these action or sci-fi TV shows, a military leader or general tends to have a red phone on their desk, and whenever they argue with someone, they say, do you want me to use that phone and then ring the president or something similar? Well, Margareta has the medieval religious equivalent of that red phone, and that is a direct, if not entirely instant, line to the Pope. Yes, and so she agrees with the Pope uh, after sending her a very quick letter in express delivery or however she communicated with the Pope that he would support Ludhat being the Archbishop. Um, they didn't want to entirely chuck Anders Jonsson out to dry and so he gets to be Bishop of Strengthness instead. Uh, something they didn't even bother telling the people of Strengthness about or even asking them and they got upset too. Um, so uh, ultimately... There's nothing really the church in Sweden can do. The Pope and their monarch has said that they need to have this archbishop, and so they just have to get along with it and accept it. Like it or not, a Dane is now in charge of the church in Sweden. So this really shows how far Margareta and Eric's power has grown, as they can even just put in whoever they like, essentially, even relatively unqualified people like a Danish priest in charge of the Swedish church. They can ignore the stipulations that the Kalmar Union has put down in these matters. I mean, it isn't as bad as appointing someone, I don't know, like me as the Swedish Archbishop, as Lunahat was a priest, but they were clearly extremely annoyed that their candidate was just chucked aside. But ultimately, there's nothing the council can do, and Lunahat will stay in his job for many years to come. 
he isn't really going to return to our story at all later on, so let's just do a greatest hits of Leodehat's life. After becoming Archbishop of Sweden, he quickly takes a mistress from Stockholm and ends up having two children with her. The council's fears were soon realised as a party attitude took hold in the office of the Archbishop. He also embezzled church property and mistreated church officials, so this really isn't going well. The church put up with it for quite a while, actually. It wasn't until 1421 that they finally snapped and complained to the Pope. Not the one that appointed Lodehat in the first place, thankfully. And that Pope actually fired the Danish Archbishop of Sweden. Yeah, wow, good job, uh, new Pope. But the story just gets even more crazy. Lodehat ends up, after a bit of time out, uh, being a bishop in Iceland. So he's really globetrotting now. And there he seems to continue having a bit of a dodgy attitude to his job and employs some even more sketchy characters in his staff. And these people are so dodgy that they went around robbing locals and causing mischief. Eventually they really crossed the line when they robbed and imprisoned two local chieftains, even forcing them to do manual labour, which was a huge humiliation for people of that status. These two chieftains then went to see the bishop and complain about this, and they murdered him. <laughs> what an end to this man's, let's say, just very checkered career. Also, I don't want to be too judgmental about historical characters, but having a mistress, embezzling church property and robbing locals, not a great track record for a bishop. And a Catholic one at that. I mean, he was supposed to live in celibacy after all. I remember reading about this during the research and it was quite interesting how they said that if he didn't end up uh, imprisoning these chieftains and being murdered he wouldn't have even really been remembered because everyone did some sort of local corruption he would just been remembered as a particularly corrupt archbishop but the fact that he went that one extra step and uh, got murdered uh, was pretty much his own fault really uh, that will put you in the history books i suppose yeah and he succeeded in getting in the history books uh, as we're talking about him today now it's time for something a little bit new here on a flat pack history of Sweden. We've finally reached the moment when there now really is way too much stuff to go into full detail about them in every episode. Uh, we truly have a lot more information to talk about and some things that we really do want to talk about but feel we can't cover properly without getting really, really, really sidetracked. Uh, the first reason is, as I just said, we're now a bit further on in history and more information has survived for us to research and read about and for historians to talk about, which is great. The next bit is something we will have to grapple with for plenty of episodes to come. We won't say how many or for how many years in the timeline, but it will be for a while, and that is the nature of the Kalmar Union. The Kalmar Union is a huge entity, politically and, of course, geographically. But we're a podcast about Swedish history. And as you've probably realised so far, a lot of the things we have been talking about right now, basically since the start of the Kalmar Union, have involved Danish characters and events that revolve around Denmark. So we need to decide what we want to talk about when it comes to the Kalmar Union. If we talked about everything Kalmar Union related, well, we might never get to the point in history where it no longer exists. We'd just become the Kalmar Union podcast. Exactly. And so from now on, we're going to start covering some of the Danish and Norwegian parts of the Kalmar Union in slightly less detail. There's the History of Scandinavia podcast out there, which covers these in uh, detail as well, and many other sources for you to learn about these events if you want to. Uh, nonetheless, we will still mention the important parts in this narrative, and especially when they impact upon the Swedish power of the Kalmar Union, we just won't go into the crazy level of uh, flat pack interest into some of the domestic troubles and tribulations that are going on in Norway and Denmark. We'll also mention what we think might be fun for you to dig into yourself if we find something particularly interesting but don't really feel like talking about it too much on the podcast. 
the reason why we're talking about this in this very episode and not the previous episode or in two episodes time is because this episode sees Denmark and by that we mean the kingdom of Denmark rather than the Kalmar Union about to get dragged into a decades-long conflict with Holstein over some territory to the south of Denmark that's always been in some sort of flux when it comes to relations with the Danish crown. Swedish troops will get involved in some of this conflict and the war will expand and shrink at various points, sometimes affecting Sweden more and sometimes not at all. Exactly. So some events in the Kalmar Union will affect every single person living there, but there will always be some local events too. So just keep that in mind going forward. Sometimes we come across things that are just so interesting, we just can't resist ourselves reading about them and then telling you about it, even if it is a bit more distantly related to strictly Swedish history. Like when we did uh, 20 minutes on the history of Poland and Lithuania a couple of episodes ago and other less dramatic examples. We could have summed up that story, for example, in three sentences, saying that Poland and Lithuania didn't like each other for ages, but ended up being one country and fought a lot with the Teutonic Knights. But we ended up spending 20 minutes on it because we thought it was so interesting. Yes, and it's in 1410, so right now in our timeline, that the story of the Teutonic Knights takes a very interesting turn that we, uh, despite what we've just said about the Kalmar Union, do want to cover in some way. The fact that you're listening to this episode right now should hopefully mean that there's also another episode out there that was released at the very same time and day as this one, just without an episode number. That's because we want to do something a little bit different to cover the next part of the Teutonic Knights story. Literally this very next part that's happening right now in the narrative. We're not going to create a history of the Teutonic Knights podcast, but this very next part of the narrative is going to be really interesting. Having said that, if we kept this description in this regular episode, it would be the segue of all segues, and some people would be just looking at the clock waiting for us to get back to Margareta and Eric and what else is going on back in the Kalmar Union. So what we'll do is we'll cover this story of the Teutonic Knights in this episode in just a few paragraphs to make sure that everyone gets to know the basics and knows what's going on. But if you want more detail and some fun stories and some drama going on down in Germany, head over to that new episode that we've just released to find out more in full detail or as much detail as uh, we can get up to. If you're only interested in the Swedish bits of our story, you can absolutely skip that extra episode. Uh, Don't worry, if you do skip it, you won't miss anything relevant to the rest of this episode or the upcoming episodes, as we're going to talk about that right now. But you will miss out on something fun. Yeah, who knows? This might happen later on with some of the non-Swedish Kalmar Union things, or later on with other events we don't feel deserve the full treatment in the regular narrative episodes, but we still think are interesting to cover. We might do them as these sort of extra episodes as well. We're absolutely not promising anything. It might just be a one-off, but we'll see how we go. Now, with that being said, shall we cover this pivotal event for the Teutonic Knights briefly? Indeed, it is the Battle of Grunwald in 1410, as we said, the same year as all this religious fun is going on with the Archbishop in Sweden. After the loss of Gotland, the Teutonic Knights were in a bit of a slump. Their Grandmaster Konrad von Jüngingen had recently died, and his tempestuous brother had taken over as Grandmaster, despite Konrad's last words to his advisors being that they should absolutely not give his brother any power, no matter the circumstances. He was uh, like an advisor, and I think he was the treasurer of the Knights at the time, but his brother said, please don't make him the Grandmaster, and uh, they didn't listen to that advice. And that was a big oops, because this brother is called Ulrich von Jungingen, and he was reckless, ambitious, and had none of his brother's diplomatic skills. Essentially, he worsened relations with Poland-Lithuania and ended up attacking them, which, I mean, that will worsen relations. That's that's (laughs) true. This led to a huge pitched battle, quite rare for this time, as armies usually ran away to the nearest castle and waited out a siege. But this was 
head-on. The combined Polish-Lithuanian army at Grunwald was led by those two characters we met previously, Jogela and Vitautas, and they crushed the Teutonic Knights. The new Grand Master, Ulrich, and 50 of the Order's top 60 knights and commanders were killed on the battlefield, which is a stunning victory. The Lizard Union of German knights were also involved in this battle, but more information on them and their supposedly crucial role in the battle in that extra episode. The Polish-Lithuanian victors then chased the order back to their capital and surrounded their defences there, but this siege didn't succeed and eventually led to a peace treaty being signed in 1411. The knights essentially managed to keep all their lands, but it was wrecked as a military force, and their reputation as battle-hardy warriors was so damaged it would essentially never recover. Fewer knights from Europe wanted to join them in their battles going forward and in all their expeditions, and at least for Sweden and the Kalmar Union, this meant that the order dropped way down the list of potential problems. Gotland is certainly under no threat of a new German invasion now. And so that's it. The Teutonic Knights have essentially been utterly defeated and the Swedes, Danes and Norwegians can just sit back and revel in the defeat of this rival, meaning they can pretty much go on and live happy lives going forward, right? Well, there is that war with Holstein that we briefly trailered. And with that, one of our recently brilliantly named characters returns as well. As this war is now kicking off and will be going on in the background for quite a while, we feel like we should have a bit of a recap or reminder of what Denmark's southern border region looks like, as we have only really briefly mentioned it all the way back at the start of Margareta's regency for her son Ulof. Yes, because back in the 1380s and 90s, when Margareta was busy fighting then-King Albert of Sweden for the throne, she was worried about possibly leaving Denmark's southern border to Holstein open for attack from Germans while she was busy in Sweden. So to prevent this risk from being stabbed in the back and to create a buffer zone, Margareta handed over the Duchy of Schleswig to a Holstein duke called Gerhard VI of Schauenberg in 1386. Schleswig, by the way, is an area that sits just at the border between Denmark and what was then Holstein, or in modern terms, the border region between Denmark and Germany. Strategically, this was quite good thinking of Margareta at the time, because it meant that she didn't have to worry about her southern border and the risk of a two-front war. She had also created a bit of a buffer zone between her kingdom and any of the other German regions that might join on Albert's side, and did join. Although in some ways it is a bit risky as she's literally giving part of Denmark away to a foreign power. Now a problem arose between Margareta and Gerhard and it all came about because of a misunderstanding. We don't know if it was a genuine misunderstanding or more a case of each side reading into it what they wanted. But either way, Margareta saw this as gifting Schleswig uh, as a loan that she'd lent Schleswig to Gerhard while she was busy fighting Albert of Mecklenburg and just for him to look after. And when she was done and her kingdom was secured, she wanted it back. Gerhard, on the other hand, considered that he had been given Schleswig as a hereditary county, meaning that it would pass to his heirs when he died. Yeah, Gerhard saw this very much now as uh, Schleswig being an independent duchy that he was completely in control of and it had nothing to do with Denmark anymore. Yeah, and he didn't think that he was going to give it back to Margareta when she was done fighting. At the time, this wasn't much of an issue and it only really comes to the surface when Gerhard dies in 1404, about 20-odd years later. At this point, he has five main heirs, his wife Elizabeth, 
three young sons called Henrik, Gerhardt, of course, and Adolf, and a brother who is, of course, because we uh, love these medieval Nordic Europeans and their confusing naming conventions, also called Henrik. So there's two Henriks and two Gerhards. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Gerhard's brother Henrik was already the Duke of Lüneburg, and now he wants Schleswig as well. But the wife, Elizabeth, she opposes this, arguing that she was her husband's rightful heir. Now, Margareta, never missing an opportunity to further her own political gains, and of course wanting Schleswig back herself, she gets involved in this and basically decides to get on Elizabeth's good side and support her, perhaps thinking that that way Elizabeth will eventually give Schleswig back to Margareta without a fuss, further down the line. She provides loans so Elizabeth can continue maintaining the duchy and its castles, for example. Eventually, relations between the Holsteiners completely break down and brother Henrik ends up fighting a war against the three sons and Elizabeth. Whilst this is kicking off, Margareta and Erik intensify their presence in Schleswig, buying land and property there, and Margareta even goes as far as living in Schleswig for extended periods of time, which is really quite intriguing as she's getting involved to such an extent that she's living in an area of such political contention. And in other people's minds, foreign country. In her mind, it's part of Denmark, but in other people's minds, she's living abroad. Yeah. To her credit, though, I've been to Schleswig a few times, and it is a lovely part of the world. I wouldn't mind living there myself, but maybe not in the early 1400s when there was a massive fight going on over it. Yeah, I can see why you might not want to live there in 1410. Um, but by the time we get to 1410, after a few years of arguments, the Schauenberger family have agreed that Gerhardt's three sons will get Schleswig. But because of Margaret and Eric's recent campaign of buying up loads of land, the Holsteiners actually only own about a third of the land there themselves. Henrik of Lüneburg, during his fight against his sister-in-law and sons, sees what Margareta and Erik are sneakily doing and doesn't really like it. He doesn't want Schleswig to fall back into the Kalmar Union's hands in a sneaky way. So he starts to spread rumours and sow distrust between Elizabeth and Margareta. Whilst he loses his claim on Schleswig to his sister-in-law and her sons, he ultimately is successful in this smear campaign. And that's because by 1410, former friends Elizabeth and Margareta are now enemies to the point that war breaks out. Elizabeth was due to return the lands to Margareta after some negotiations between the two of them, but it seems like right at the end of the process, her advisers and other leaders in the duchy didn't want to lose their independent status as this independent duchy, and so had Elizabeth declared the right and permanent ruler of the region herself, and she just yeah either instigated this process herself or went along with it. I mean, that's some pretty successful smearing by Duke Henrik uh, if he was indeed behind all of this. Indeed. Um, the first act of hostility between these two forceful women occurs when a few Holstein knights capture the town of Schleswig. Slightly confusing because the region is called Schleswig, but there's also a town called Schleswig. I think we're called the town Schleswig town and the region just Schleswig going forward. Yeah, that's a good idea. Also makes it sound like it's an English football team, Schleswig Town, playing <laughs> Nottingham Forest. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> Schleswig Town 3, Accrington Stanley 2. <laughs> exactly. So back to these knights seizing Schleswig Town, and they capture the bishop there, a man called Skondelef, who is pro-Denmark and the Kalmar Union. That's a name worthy of the Ansgar story there. Uh, Skandaluf with those uh, Erinburts yeah. and Ermiburts and all of those lovely names. Good names in general. When King Erik finds out about this, he is furious since he actually owns Schleswig town. And so he makes sure he is ready to fight back. And so does Margareta. They race around 8,000 soldiers and get ready to march on Holstein. 
Margareta splits the forces in two, one half commanded by Eric himself and the other by none other than Knight Abraham Brodersson, our father Abraham from episode 73 of former Gotland fame. Margareta also makes sure Eric is in charge of the entire overall campaign, despite not really having any military experience. On the other hand, Abraham is probably the most experienced commander in the entire Kalmar Union at this point, so it made sense that he was in charge of at least half of the army. Margaretha puts Eric in charge because she was seeing at this point that maybe Eric wasn't really living up to his potential and was a somewhat flawed character. We've seen previously in letters and things how he was called arrogant and stubborn and dismissive. And so Margaretha didn't want to spend decades building up Denmark and then the Kalmar Union just to let it all fall apart if Eric wasn't capable enough to take the lead after she dies. So she hoped that this war and putting him in command would help mould him into a better commander and also political leader as well. So we'll just have to see how that goes. Eric's plan is for his half of the army to head west and capture regions over around there, and Abraham is to head east and capture the castle of Sunderboy. Now, it's worth saying a few more words about Abraham's character. He was, well, uh, not a nice man. The rhyming chronicle praises his military skills and bravery, but he's also described as a thief and oppressor and a very violent man. But he was also the best knight in Eric and Margareta's service, and many people think that, based on abilities and experience, Abraham really should have been in charge of the entire army, but Margareta wanted to give Eric this chance to prove himself, as Chris said. We spoke in the last time we saw him how he tried to blackmail all these people into selling his lands cheaply, or he'd arrest them and throw them in Kalmar Castle and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, he's not a great guy, but he's the best man for the job. Unfortunately, though, despite their best laid plans, the Danish attack fails miserably. After failing to lay siege to Sunderboy, the Danes face the Holstein army on the battlefield but suffer a spectacular defeat. In general, this first campaign in the war was a disaster. Eric ends up signing a peace treaty with Elizabeth on the 16th of December 1410, but this is soon broken quickly. Acting in a fit of rage, Eric declares Schleswig part of the Danish kingdom once and for all, upping the tension significantly. After this failed siege of Sunderboy and the defeat on this battlefield, Eric decides to, well, pretty much blame it all on Abraham, because he was resentful of Abraham's presence and power. According to historian Louis-Gabriel Michaud, by this time, Abraham had become so powerful and was held by Margareta in such high regard that Eric thought that he was potentially threatening his throne, and other people thought that too. Needing some sort of excuse, other than not being able to win the war single-handedly, Eric goes on to accuse Abraham of having raped a local woman, and based on that accusation, has him killed by having his head cut off with a sword without any time to appeal, as the sentence was carried out essentially immediately after Eric and a show trial decided he was guilty. Wow, so it was just... Off with the head, basically. I mean, we don't know if there was any truth to this rape story. On the one hand, accounts of Abraham's character would make it seem, well, not unlikely. But yes, at the same time, there was Eric's jealousy and fear of Abraham's power and good standing. Due to Abraham's character, it perhaps wouldn't be all too hard to make people believe this was true, even if he didn't do it. This execution happens unbeknownst to Margareta, who greatly lamented the death of her favourite knight, and even had an altar made in his honour in the cathedral in Lund, where masses for him and her would be held conjointly. That practice didn't last long, but still shows how much she must have liked him. At the same time, Margareta seems to have forgiven Eric, as she so often did when he did rash and perhaps headless things, 
forgives him for ordering the execution without her knowledge. The conflict rumbles on into 1411, but after some skillful intervention by Margareta, the two sides are able to meet and sign a new ceasefire in the Danish town of Kolding on the 24th of March. This ceasefire is set to last for five years, and it's decided that the conflict will be resolved by a court of arbitration held down in Niboy at an unspecified date. To absolutely no one's surprise, the ceasefire of Kolding does not last for five years. It only lasted until a bit into the next year, 1412, when a group of knights from Holstein attacked and captured Flensburg, which, along with Schleswig town, is a main town in the area. Once again, an all-out war is looming, but it's being prevented by Margareta's political judgment. She presses ahead with the idea of a court of arbitration and convinces Ulrich of Mecklenburg, who, in spite of his name, has been in Marietta and Erik's service since the previous year, she convinces him to be the judge of arbitration. Not the most unbiased judge then, considering he's working for Margareta and Eric. <laughs> yeah, and that might be part of the reason why the Court of Arbitration decides that, yeah, Flensburg should be handed back to Margareta, and that the court shall convene again in Nuboy the next year, with the view to end all hostilities over Schleswig once and for all. Following this, for Margareta's part, the successful result in the ruling of Niboy, she heads to Flensburg and she's welcomed back to her town in triumph, with celebrations being thrown in her honour by the people of the town. The party is cut short, though, because, well, Margareta dies. Yep, she dies on her ship, which is moored in Flensburg Harbour on the 28th of October, 1412. A uh, bit of a surprise there, we weren't trailing that at mm. all, and uh, when you've been following the narrative for so long, it seems like she's invincible, but <laughs> she uh, she just dies. She's described as dying after only being ill for a short while, and it's not certain what the cause of death was, but we know for a fact that there was a plague outbreak in the Flensburg region at the time, so it could be that, and a lot of scholars declare this to be the reason. Margareta was 59 years old when she died, so relatively old for the time period, but, um, you know, you could be forgiven for expecting she's going to live for quite a while longer, judging by what she's been doing so far. So, Queen Margareta, founder of the Kalmar Union, queen of the medieval kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, and over a region that stretched from Finland in the east to Iceland in the west, is no more. She's been on our podcast journey since episode 58, when she was first introduced as being a baby daughter of then King Valdemar of Denmark. She ruled some parts of the Nordics for 26 years, an astonishing length of reign not just by medieval standards, but modern ones too, especially considering she was a woman. Considering how long she's been part of our story and what a formidable character she was, it's only fitting that we spend the last bit of this episode looking back at her life and legacy. Definitely, and here we should give special credit to the analysis of her and her reign by historians Lars Olof Larsson, Margareta Skanse and Vivian Etting, who are some of the main sources we've read about her time in power. First of all, it is interesting to note that both in her own time and throughout the years of historical study that have occurred since, there is one thing that is always in focus when we talk about Margareta, the fact that she's a woman. Whilst women rulers were unusual in medieval Europe, she wasn't even unique in her own lifetime. The Kingdom of Naples was ruled by a woman, Queen Joanna, from 1343 to 1381, and we briefly actually mentioned her in our episode on St. Birgitta. And the Queens of Poland and Hungary also acted as regents. We mentioned Jadwiga of Poland only briefly in our podcast, but she was a formidable character too. What nonetheless sets Margareta apart was the fact that she was declared ruler in not one but three kingdoms by all male councils and nobilities and kept it for so long undisputedly. And that's really extraordinary. It is, and it begs the question how a woman could rise to such a position. 
First, if we look at the preconditions for her rise to power, it no doubt helped that she was the daughter of King Valdemar, an incredibly powerful Danish king who had piece by piece put Denmark back together in the 1300s after it had literally fallen apart. Secondly, and what historians argue was important to Margareta's ability to achieve the position she did, was the fact that she was a widow. As such, she belonged to no man, not a husband and not a father, which would have been the case if she was unmarried. It, then she'd belong to her father, and if she was married, she'd be a man's wife. In her lifetime, being a widow gave her the legal opportunity to be viewed as more or less equal to a man. At least it gave her independence. And she became a widow at a very young age, or at least relatively young, since King Håkon of Norway, her husband, died in 1380. And that meant she had 32 years of her life, more than half of it, left to live out in that status. She was only 27 when she became a widow, and would have had ample time and no doubt opportunity to remarry and even have more children, but she never seemed to show any interest in that. Perhaps she knew that remarrying would have upset the power structures and created the risk that she would once again be seen as a man's woman rather than a political decision maker in her own right. Beyond having the right preconditions, there's no denying that she was an accomplished player of the political game of chess, both when it came to economy and politics. When she encountered situations that threatened her position, she acted speedily and with purpose, like after her son's death when she put her nephew Eric on the throne, or in the case of fake Olaf. She certainly preferred diplomacy to war, she was a master of getting her own way through political means, but at the same time she wasn't afraid of winning these political battles through violence if necessary, so uh, Clausewitz would be proud. In addition to placing the importance of her own dynasty's power on top of her agenda, Marietta also championed a kind of real politique 400 years before the term was coined, this pragmatism and placing importance on results rather than methods can be seen in particular in her politics about a Nordic Union and the formation and operation of the Kalmar Union. It was less about a desire for Nordic unity and more about a need for strengthened power against increased German and especially Hanseatic power in the region. That was what seemed to motivate her actions. In many ways, Margareta is synonymous with the Kalmar Union in Scandinavian history, since her life and work was so closely intertwined with its formation and its earliest years. Slight spoiler alert, but the Kalmar Union will continue on after Margareta, but it will never be quite the same as when it was her firm hand ruling it. Like we said, the fact that Margareta was a woman is something that runs like a common thread throughout any analysis of her. In her own time, her archenemy, Albert of Mecklenburg, called her Kung Buxlos, King No Trousers, a mocking nickname that stuck with her to the extent that even later historians have used it and described her as that. We've often talked about how history is greatly impacted by the present time that it's written in, and that can be seen extremely clearly in the case of Maya during time periods when being a single woman with power, or, well, widowed, but nevertheless without a man in her life, when that was seen as something very negative, well, then Margareta is described in the history books as a power-crazed oppressor, controlled by the devil, more or less. And then when attitudes shift to view women in power as something positive and something to be admired... Well, then Margareta becomes an almost saint-like woman who did a far superior job at ruling and treated the people much better than any man before or after her. Yeah, and like you say, this isn't unique for Margareta, this way of looking at her. We've seen it with characters like uh, Queen Elizabeth I in England as well. How these women are viewed as rulers often say more about the time that the history is written in than the woman and their time. 
In Margareta's case, the same can be said about how her nationality has been viewed in Sweden over the course of history and presumably in Norway too. When Sweden and Denmark once again became enemies, then Margareta is described as being very Danish, always favouring Denmark and the Danes, and so on. But then in the mid-1800s, when the Scandinavism movement, an ideology that supports various degrees of cooperation among the Scandinavian countries, became influential, then analysis of Margareta was revisited by historians in Sweden, and a wholeheartedly positive image of her as the initial creator of a unified Nordic emerged. So she's gone from one extreme to the other. Another aspect of Margareta's life that has been the topic of much historical analysis and debate is her relationship to her nephew, foster son, and heir to the throne, Erik. Some historians argue that Margareta was disappointed in him, didn't approve of his hot headedness, and lack of political level headedness and pragmatism. Much of that line of analysis is based on Margareta's involvement in the conflict with Holstein, where she's the one that pushes through political solutions after Erik has gone off to fight and failed. Margareta Skanse even takes it as far as suggesting that Margareta, who died before the conflict was properly resolved, that she died disillusioned and with the noise of the times of war that she had tried to prevent, but that her heir had once again let loose over her kingdom, ringing in her ears. Of course, there's no way of knowing what Margareta thought or felt, and after all, she was no stranger to war herself, having been the instigator of military battles and campaigns many times, both in Sweden against Albert and on Gotland against the Knights, for example. Even though for perhaps mainly political reasons due to her sex, she never commanded on the battlefield. Margareta unfortunately left no diary or any other personal records in particular, but there are a few letters from her preserved. One particularly interesting one is a letter she sends to Eric before he travels to Norway in 1404. We mentioned this letter briefly in our previous episode on Philippa and their marriage, because in it she offers him some very personal words of wisdom and emphasises that Eric needs to win sympathy from his subjects, both rich and poor. She writes that he should mind his tongue and control his temper in order to not have himself and his entourage be badly received by the locals in Norway and viewed as foreigners, which they de facto kind of were in the sense they were coming from Denmark, even though they were the king in Norway too. Eric's also told not to get into arguments with the main political figures of the country, but at the same time make sure they don't try to control him. He should fill his council with trusted and devoted men. All big and important political decisions should be postponed as long as possible and all options kept on the table, which is, yeah, kind of very margaretary. In general, the letter has a tone of, yes, you're the ruler and you must do things on your own, but also try not to make any big decisions without checking with me first. Margareta then reminds Eric that he is ruling by the grace of God and as such is above the law, which meant that he could and should negate promises and privileges, especially if given by previous rulers, if he saw fit. Once again, an example of her realpolitik and how she always looked out for her own personal power. In this letter, Margareta is in equal measures both harsh and supportive. Perhaps it's indicative of any older statesperson offering advice to their successor, or indeed of a parent to their child who is now a young adult. Margareta wants Eric to be king, but just not too much, and he should do it right and properly and not ruin what she's built up. This letter is used as evidence by those who said that Margareta was disappointed in how Eric was turning out as a ruler. Perhaps she wasn't entirely super disappointed at that point, but she was seeing the warning signs and wanted to make sure that he didn't go down the wrong path. Either way, now he has no choice but to be king, completely and entirely, because the Queen of the Nordics is gone. 
again, slight spoilers, but it will now take another 220 years until Sweden gets an official woman ruler. Over in Denmark, it will take all the way until Margareta's namesake and current monarch, Queen Margareta II, ascends the throne in 1972 for there to be a second woman as monarch. But Denmark have had uh, women prime ministers, so it uh, depends on, on how you count. <laughs> Indeed. And, well, in Norway, they're still waiting for a woman monarch since they have only had kings in Norway since the death of Margareta. In perhaps maximum of 50 years' time or so, uh, they might have their next one, though, because the second in line to the throne of Norway right now is Princess Ingrid Alexandra, who was born in 2004. Her grandfather is the current but uh, relatively old and unwell King Harald V of Norway, who will be succeeded eventually by his son and Ingrid's dad, Crown Prince Haakon. So, yeah, not wishing an early death on neither King Harald nor Crown Prince Håkon, but a woman monarch is now on the cards again for Norway after 600 years. Woohoo! Even though there now won't be official women monarchs in our timeline for quite a while, that doesn't mean we won't see more influential women with strong political power in Sweden and indeed in Scandinavia. In fact, Margareta's strong position as long-term ruler of the Nordics no doubt helped set the stage for her daughter-in-law, Erik's wife, Queen Philippa, who we will see play an important role in the reign of her husband in the years to come. Yes, because that's what's next on our journey. Uh, Sweden and Scandinavia without Margareta. And a uh, flatback history of Sweden that has gone 20-odd uh, episodes of having her around is now going to have to do without her. So we'll have to see what happens when King Eric is now alone at the helm of this large three-kingdom union that's now facing no shortage of enemies down south on the Danish border and slow-brewing internal tension as well. Yes, all that is to come, but for now, it's time to say thank you for listening. Make sure to listen to the next episode that is already out uh, if you want more information about the downfall of the Teutonic Order whilst all this fun stuff was going on with Holstein and Margareta dying, although that wasn't fun, obviously. Yeah. And we'll see you again in two weeks' time for the next regular episode. If you want to get in touch before then, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter just by searching a Flatpack History of Sweden, or you can email us at flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. There's also our website, www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we have a list of the sources we use, family trees, a list of the Swedish phrases, some old maps, and all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, so until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, doll.